0: Okay, how are we, family? Good? All right. Good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome to Tapper. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here, and uh, we get to just keep working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So I'll, uh, I'll just start off this morning here with this question. How are you with God? Like, when when you just assess your relationship with God or, or, or when you think about who God is and what perhaps God thinks of you, how are you? I think for some of us, we're loved. Good, that's good. For some of us, we're loved. Uh, for others, we're, we're not so sure, All right? Some of you are here this morning and... Uh, maybe you are. Maybe you have walked in, and you're just like overwhelmed with uh, the love and the grace and the patience of God. I hope that's the case. Others of you are in here this morning, and um, you're just not quite sure, right? And that's okay too. Uh, I hope that we can come to a landing point this morning of just more certainty about who you are and, and what God thinks of you. But I think it's interesting when. When we think of this question of, of how, how am I with God, I think the basis that we most quickly go to is around how we're performing. Right? Like, how, like how good and how much we're doing. It's, it's our, our proclivity. I think it's the human proclivity. to When we think in terms of, of how are we with God or what does God think of me, to assess that in light of how much we're doing and how well we're doing it. And we're prone to just simply believe that the more that we're performing, the more uh, that we're, you know, whatever, going to church, the more that we're praying, the more that we're reading, the more that we're doing, like, all of the the right godly things, uh, the happier God is with us, the more impressed he is with us. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, uh, every once in a while in the evenings, my wife and I will uh, peruse YouTube and uh, watch vagabonds travel the world in vans. <laughs> and it was interesting, the other night we were watching one of these, silly, they're silly, just so you know. Um, we were watching one and it was uh, this, this couple, I'm always perplexed by these couples. First off, I just wonder how they get money to do what they do. It's absolutely mind-boggling to me right? Has anyone else done this? I'm not, I'm not the only one, obviously. Wow. All the YouTubers said, amen, right? <laughs> um, anyways, one, they were doing a question and response thing, and they were, someone asked the question about God. And it was so interesting. Like, Their, their response was just this very kind of uh, basic, all religions are going the same direction, and we just all want to be good and better people. And I was like, wow, that we, we really do believe that still. And it, was just, it was just very kind of eye-opening to me. And I, I wonder how often we, we believe that. Like, I wonder how often we, you know, maybe, maybe for us it's not kind of the whole, like, all paths lead the same direction kind of thing. But I do wonder how often we find ourselves in a place of believing that we just need to do more good, better, often. Right? And if we would just do more better, then God would be more pleased. But the Gospels continually shock us, right? And, and the story of Jesus continually shocks us. And the, the, the way that Jesus interacts with the religious people compared to the irreligious people continually shocks us. And certainly the parables that we have before us this morning ought to cause us to pause a moment. See, I think this parable, as I was thinking through these parables this past week, uh, they're a real challenge to people like like myself, and maybe maybe a bunch of you can can uh, relate to this. Uh, so I've been I've been a part of the church, or you know, kind of going to church, a, ch- a church goer, for about 26 years. How many How many of you have been at least 26 years? Look at that, a good portion of us. Right? Twice that someone said. <laughs> So I've, been, I've been a churchgoer for about 26 years. I would say of that 26 years, I've been a disciple of Jesus that is actually like committed to following Jesus for 21 of those years. Within that 21 years, I've been a leader in the church for about 17 years and working full-time for churches for about 15 years. This text is talking to me. This text is a, it is a warning to people like me. Because this text, it's highlighting, it. it's calling out how easy it is, especially for leaders in the church, but really for any who have been a part of the church for really a decent amount of time to just kind of easily fall into believing that we're just good because of all that we're doing and how consistent we are. I mean, 26 years and I just keep showing up. God's got to be impressed. (sighs) And sometimes it's really hard to show up, right? So here's here's where we're at. Just to remind us a little bit about kind of where we are in this text. Last week, Will showed us how Jesus is better, right? We saw how Jesus is the better king, the better priest, and the better prophet or fruit grower, depending on which language you want to use there. And what we see in chapter 21 in the Gospel of Matthew is really that it's a big transition point in the life and ministry of Jesus, okay? Up until this point, Jesus has mostly avoided the spotlight. And any time, in particular his disciples, any time someone has come and declared that he's the Messiah, what has Jesus done? He, yeah, he's shushed him. He said, no, be quiet. You guys are understanding what this is, so don't tell anyone, But now in chapter 21, we have this transition where Jesus all of a sudden enters into Jerusalem and he's, 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 seated on, on a donkey and, and people are, the crowds are around him and they're, they're praising him. Hosanna, right? They're worshiping him as king. And he's, and he's for the first time, he's, he's receiving that worship. And so the trajectory of Jesus's life and ministry at this point is changing. He's beginning to do things now that are very messianic in how he goes in. And and so what we see is that Jesus is the promised king to sit on the throne of David forever. This is where Matthew has been wanting to take us. Okay, So uh, if we can all remember back to 2019 when we started the gospel of Matthew... In Matthew chapter 1, right, Jesus, or or Matthew, sorry, he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And he begins it by telling us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the get-go, he wanted us to see that, that the Old Testament story of Israel is being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, And it's culminating in this moment. It's culminating in this point right here where we see that Jesus is clearly the promised one who's supposed to sit on the throne of David forever. That's Jesus. He is that king, right? And and he is, just so we're clear, he is ruling and reigning now as Lord and king over everything, right? And so this is where Matthew has wanted us to get to is to see that the promises of the Old Testament are finding their fulfillment in Christ. And so we're in the final week of Jesus's life. He's entered into Jerusalem as king where Herod is king and where Caesar is ruler of the world, which is absolutely uh, a statement. right? You have to, you, you, it's, it's so hard for us to pick up on the political tension here. Uh, and just so you know, when we hit the new year, uh, we get to talk a bit about politics because the Bible lets us. Right, I know. Like often, people are like, "Oh, we can't talk about politics in the church." The gospels are full, full of insane political statements, and Jesus is making one here. Right? Like, imagine you know, he's he's entering in, being declared as king when there already is a king. Remember from last week, Herod's already king, but yet Jesus is being declared king. Caesar is the ruler. Caesar is the king of the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus is being heralded as the king. This is undoubtedly a statement about something. And it's also Passover week. And so we know that the city is crowded. I think we'll reference that the city of Jerusalem, they think, was around 50,000 people. Uh, and it's possible that it swelled to over 150,000 people during Passover week. And so if you can imagine, uh, the, the city is you know quadrupling in size. And then it's also filled with animals who are getting ready to be sacrificed for, for a week. Yeah. So this is, this is the scene in which we have before us. And so this morning, I want us to kind of attempt to, chap, to capture all of chapter 21 because it really all goes together. Uh, chapter 21, really, uh, 21 onward is, is rather difficult to break up because it's just kind of one consistent sequence of things that are taking place. And, and really what we'll see here is that these parables belong with what was talked about last week. It's just hard to preach, you know, 46 verses in one morning. And so we're going to try to to bring it all together, so we'll kind of recapture a little bit of what happened last week, Um, but I'm going to do it from a bit of a different slant. That's the hope. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that how the prophet Jesus calls the corrupted priests to repentance, and in a shocking twist, they refuse, and the kingdom goes to the societally rejected, right? Like this is the upside-down reality of the kingdom. Jesus is the final prophet. He calls people to repentance. Those who you would expect to receive his message refuse his message. Those who you would expect to reject his message actually receive his message. And so uh, we're going to talk about three points this morning from these parables. Number one, we're going to talk about how the parables expose the corruption. Uh, Number two, we'll talk about how the parables expose the need. And then number three, the parables expose the plan. And I don't have anything on screens this morning again, so we're all focused right here, okay? Number one, the parables expose the corruption. So we'll start with this. We can see clearly here in these parables that they are, again, they're a link to what we saw last week. Okay, so notice how the parable here in verse 28 starts out with just this question, what do you think? Okay, so uh, we should just pause right there and stop and ask, well, who is Jesus talking to? Anyone? Who's Jesus talking to? Yeah, Pharisees. He's talking to the... it's <laughs> close. It's all right, Joey. <laughs> uh, he was talking to the religious leaders, right? Uh, verse 23 tells us that when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus is continuing this conversation with the chief priests and the elders, We also know from verse 45 uh, that the Pharisees are present. So we have these, just essentially this conglomeration of the religious leaders in, in Israel. And this is who Jesus is having his conversation with specifically. So what we know then is that these parables are a direct connection to them. These parables, in these parables, Jesus is talking specifically to the leaders of the people of Israel. Here's how uh, Craig Blomberg, in his commentary on Matthew, says it. He says, quote, the parable is the first of a series of three. So you have uh, this, these two, and then carrying into Matthew 22 as well. In sequence, they depict God's indictment, sentence, and execution of the present Jewish leadership. In other words, what's happening here in these parables is Jesus is using these stories to expose the depth of corruption among the leaders of Israel. Now, Jesus has already begun to do this, right? We saw this last week when he went into the temple. Was Jesus happy about the temple? No. No, Jesus is angry. Why? Because they're using it to exchange money. Right, You have to, again, imagine the setting. You have, you have hundreds of thousands of people who don't typically exist in the city of Jerusalem now flooding into Jerusalem. And they need currency to be able to get those sacrifices, to pay for those things. And for whatever reason, the chief priests, the leaders of Israel decide they're going to use the temple to set that place up. And so the temple becomes this place where, where money is exchanged and currency is received so that the people who are coming into the city can pay for their sacrifices if they haven't been able to bring one with them. Right? And so this, is, this makes Jesus irate. And Jesus just, he, just, I mean, he gets angry, right? flips tables, yells, you know, the things that we normally think of Jesus doing. But in doing so, he's, he's, he's already begun to condemn the religious leaders, right, in their, in their approach to leading the people of Israel. And he essentially, he just says, you're not using my temple for a house of worship or a house of prayer for the nations. Those who ought to be welcomed in uh, to receive a flourishing life and hear of the goodness of the story of God are not unable to because you're using it for business, and so Jesus has already begun this indictment of the religious leaders. He's also denounced them as a fruitless people. And this is another important connection, right? So verse 20, or sorry, verse uh we'll do verse 18 there. It says in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went up to it and found. Nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And now here's the connection, verse 43. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so Jesus is just, he's using the fig tree as a physical illustration to show the leaders of Israel that they're not bearing fruit that they're intended to bear as the leaders of Israel. And so they're, they're condemned. Note, he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. It's a very plain and simple statement by Jesus. And then verse 43, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, makes clear it's, it's going somewhere else. Something new is about to happen He's he's saying that the the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the, the, the worship, the sacrificial system, all of this as it was known is coming to an end. And so the leaders are denounced as a fruitless people, and these parables are just simply an illustration of that reality. But what exactly was it that was so corrupt about the leaders, why, why, is it, why is it that Jesus is so angry with these people? Right? Well, let's, let's read the parable again, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, The same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. So here's, here's the first thing that we see that's going on here with this parable. Uh, Jesus highlights how the leaders were quick to say yes, but didn't follow through in action. Right? They were quick to say yes, but their but their action was a persistent no. Okay? Now I don't I don't know exactly what this looked like or what this entailed because um, the the religious leaders were present. Like they were they were present among the people of Israel, as authorities in their lives, uh, but it seems that Jesus is not seeing any actual fruit in their lives. It's and it's a real challenge because people could look at the religious leaders from the outside, right? Just normal people, kind of looking and saying like, "Wow, these people are they're amazing, they're great, they're doing all that they should be doing," but Jesus is saying, "No, they're not." And so in, in, some, in some way, shape, or form, what we see is that they were the heavily involved religious people, always at the church, always doing the church things, but they weren't actually bearing fruit. They were giving verbal yeses, but physical noes. They're the people in the parable, the religious leaders are the ones in the parable, who the, the, the father. Says, go into the vineyard, and they immediately, they quickly, they they zealously respond, Yes, we're gonna do it. And then they don't go. And so Jesus says this isn't this isn't the way of the kingdom. The second thing that we see from the parables and and what it is that is corrupt in the leaders is that they're presuming upon the promises of God. Um, Let's read the second parable. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, "'This is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance.' And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants?' And they said to him, "'He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons.' And Jesus said to them, "'Have you never read the Scriptures?' The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, this is, this is an interesting challenge here, right? Uh, we have to, in essence, what we see happening here is that the, the religious leaders' faith was essentially the fact that they grew up in church, Like what they were what they were basing their their status and their position off of was that this is what they'd always done. And this is where they always were. They were always in the presence of of the temple. They were the ones who were who were consistent in their worship and consistent in their practices and consistent in their sacrifices. It's interesting, they're the ones who were consistent in knowledge of Scripture. Notice, notice Jesus' words there when he says, have you read in the Scriptures? Or, what is he, uh, Sorry, have you never read in the Scriptures? That's, that's like a, that's a bit of a jab. Like, Jesus knows, like, of all people who know the Scriptures, these people know the Scriptures. Like, Jesus knows that they have read and they've likely memorized Psalm 118. And so they've built their entire life on a presumption of the promises of God, right? They, they assume that just because they're the leadership of God's promised people, that they're always and forever good. The problem is that they don't then respond to it with a life of obedience, This is this is one of those challenging places for us, right? That in the kingdom, our response to the the story of God, the gracious story of God, is to be a life of obedience. Like we are we are intended to respond obediently to Jesus in the way that we live life. Again, Blomberg, in his commentary, he, just, he has this little quip, and he says this, In the kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. Right? So again, in the kingdom, right, so in the way of Jesus, performance takes priority over promise. Performance is a challenging word. <laughs> I understand that, right? Uh, but it's, it's just simply living a life in obedience to the grace of God. Remember, one of the one of the things that we've we've talked about repeatedly, and we'll hopefully continue to talk about repeatedly, is that uh, grace grace fuels our effort as followers of Jesus. Right. So, it, for us, we we hear uh, and we we experience and we see God's rescue and. From that then flows a life of obedience to God. Not because we have to do anything to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, but rather because God's love has been clearly displayed to us. This is why it's so important for us to understand uh, stories like the Exodus. Remember, when we when we think of the Exodus story, when did the law come into play? After the rescue. God, God rescued a people because of nothing, but be, other, other than His grace and his, his love and his care and his desire for this people. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't a great people. they weren't large. They weren't doing anything particularly amazing. God simply chose to show his love and grace to this people and he rescued them out of slavery, holding to his his promises. And then after that comes this expectation of obedience. And so it is for us. As followers of Jesus, the grace of God is not there for us to presume upon. We don't live presumptuous lives like, Banking on some prayer that we prayed 20 years ago, but then not living any Christian life after that. Right? Rather, we, we repeatedly, over and over and over again, come back to the grace of God, and, and we, we labor to obey him. We, we, we actually desire to obey, to be the son who, who, who says, yes. And actually then goes and does what the father has asked, right? So the leaders were quick to say yes, but they didn't follow through in action. Second, they were presuming upon the promises of God. You see this also um, in John 8, right? In, in, in the gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus there has an argument with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. What do they do there? Uh, they appeal to and they say that we're, we're children of Abraham, right? And Jesus corrects them and says, no, you're children of the devil, Again, uh, the Jesus we expect, right? <laughs> Presuming upon the promises of God. And then third, what we see is that they were actually acting in line with their actual heritage. Right? So the corruption that Jesus is exposing here through these parables is corruption that has always existed in the leadership of Israel, I think we need to understand that the people of Israel have, um, they've never been particularly obedient to the promises or to, to God. They've never been particularly faithful. There was never a moment in the history of Israel where God was like, man, you guys have finally got this figured out. Good job. No, you see, you see a story, right, in Genesis through Deuteronomy, where they're brought out of slavery and into a promised land And then you go into a really horrible history from 1 Samuel through Chronicles and then a few other things in between and then you have prophets. And the prophets are are never clapping their hands. See, what the leaders fail to see here and what Jesus exposes through these parables is that the, the priests and the elders, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are actually acting in line with what has always taken place. So again, the, the second parable here, when Jesus references, um, uh, we have here, the, when the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants. The servants in this parable are representative of the prophets. Uh, He sends the servants to the tenants. The tenants in this parable are representative of the leaders of Israel. And notice what the tenants do when the prophets come. They reject them. And then uh, uh, more get sent, and they get rejected again. And so what's happening, Jesus is, is wanting the religious leaders to kind of relive the story of Israel in this moment. They're supposed to be thinking about their history and understanding their history, knowing that that... They're the, they're the leaders who, just like all who have gone before them, are continuing to reject the people who God sends. And then ultimately culminates here in Jesus, right? Jesus is sent as the final prophet, and Jesus is rejected by the leaders of Israel, Rather than the leaders responding to Jesus in repentance and in obedience and calling the people of Israel as well to repentance and obedience, they continue to lead the people astray. They, just like the leaders before them, are rejecting the prophets' voices. Now, I think it's important for us to understand here the prophetic voice of Jesus, again, we'll talked about this last week, right? How Jesus is the better prophet. Not only only is Jesus the better prophet, Jesus is the final prophet. And and Jesus's role here as the final prophet is just like the prophets who have gone before him to call the people to repentance. Now this this sort of sets us up for what's coming. Uh, Jesus's prophetic voice in the coming chapters, in chapter 22, 23, and 24 in particular, is going to get louder, right? And so I want to I give us just at this moment kind of a preliminary understanding and definition of, of the, the role of a prophet. Uh, there's a really great book by uh, a guy named Michael Gorman, and it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Okay? That should intrigue you. Hey, I, I, I can't recommend this book enough. reading Revelation responsibly. And he defines prophecy like this. He says, prophecy in the biblical tradition is not exclusively or even primarily about making pronouncements and predictions concerning the future. Rather, Prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what the prophets have done who have gone before Jesus, and this is what Jesus, as the final prophet, is doing. He's speaking both words of comfort and especially words of challenge on behalf of God for the purpose of calling his people to repentance. Right? And, and he's, he's preparing them for an impending judgment, which just so we know is what the prophets have continually communicated to the people of Israel up to this point. That if you, if you don't obey, if you don't repent and change your ways, there is going to be a judgment coming. And this is, this is what the pattern of Scripture is, right? So if you, if you think through the, the story, the history of Israel and, and, and the prophets, uh, who winds up coming and judging Israel? Babylon, right? The Babylonians take them into exile. Jesus is essentially warning them, this same thing is going to happen again, but it's not Babylon, it's Rome. Who is just another form of Babylon, right? But this is what Jesus is, he's preparing them for. And so he's playing this, he's, he's, he's not playing this role, he is this final prophet. Right? But in turn, what happens here, because of the leader's uh, obstinance, what they wind up doing is they reject God, they reject Jesus, and they reject people. Right? This, is, this is the consequence when we, when we refuse to hear God's words, and think that what God is primarily concerned with is us just showing up on Sunday. Or just kind of putting on the good Christian deed act or face. Right? He, being here is great. But he doesn't just want us to be here. He wants us to, to hear him. Right? He wants us to hear his words. He wants us to to, to hear his, his love and his pursuit of us. Right? And he wants us to obey him. Not, not, as, not as a performance in order to earn his, his love and his favor, but because Christ has already done it for us. Right? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has already gone before us and performed perfectly in our place. And because of Jesus' finished work. The love of God is lavished upon us. And what flows from that is a joyful response and a joyful obedience. Just I, just remind you, how many of you have been reading through the book Gifts of Grace, the Advent book? I, if Good. If you haven't, you should go read it. It is rich. Like, it is good. It is so good. And just it over and over, just each day articulates just these beautiful gifts of grace that have been given to us through the Father and, and just continues to reiterate just the realities of the love uh, that we have as a people in Christ. Right? Okay, so to close this point out though, um, we cannot depend on our upbringing and our pedigree, so to speak, right? And I think this is a really important question for us to ask if, we've, if we're the people who have been into the church, in the church for like 10, 15, 20, 30, 60 years, right? Because I, I think it's so easy for us to just kind of to, to fall back on, well, I've just, I just, I just always done it. And yet Jesus calls us to himself, which is the second thing that the parables do here. The parables expose the need. Uh, And ultimately, what the parables do is they don't just expose the need for the religious leaders, they expose the need for humanity, right? What, What Jesus most clearly wants the priests and the elders to see, and also us, is that repentance is what is needed and required for all of us. So so notice again in the first parable of the two sons, Uh, verse 29, he answered, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and went. The word there for change is the word repent. So it's it's, it's interesting, like you have this tension in the parable, because in my mind, I want to say neither of them obeyed, right? Does anyone else have that? Like, the first one just flat out says, no. Like, I don't know about you, but if one of my kids tells me no, there's consequences. Right? Maybe you don't have kids, but you remember being a kid, and if you told your parent no, there was likely consequences, right? And so in my mind, I want to say, like, both of them dis- disobeyed. But this, is, but this is, again, this is the scandalous nature of, of grace in the gospel, the first son says no, but then changes his mind and goes and does the work that the father invited him into. Right? The second, on the other hand, is the one who actually disobeys, who, yes, there's, there's zeal and there's, there's passion and there's this kind of outward excitement and commitment. Yes, I'll do the, the God thing, but then ultimately doesn't obey the father's voice. But the emphasis within this text, notice, again, verse 29, he changed his mind and went. Jesus' question in the middle, which of the two did the will of the Father? And then notice here in the last little bit in verse 32, uh, notice the words. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds, that is, repent and believe him. What's Jesus doing? What is he calling us to? Belief. Right? Belief. He's calling us to faith in the faithfulness of God. He, he's he's exposing this reality that the need, the need for both the religious and the irreligious is for repentance. And, and, and that's the challenge for religious people. This is, this is the challenge for us. Like, I would, I would invite you to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in this text? Where do you see yourself in this text? You don't have to answer, but just you know, think for a moment. Perhaps some of you are in a season or that space where you're like, yeah, I'm more like the tax collector and prostitute. Understand that uh, the, the phrasing here for tax collector and prostitute is just, it, it's, uh, it just captures all that is wicked to the people of Israel. Maybe we find ourselves there. But for the most part, we're much more prone to be like the religious people we're, we're much more prone to struggle with seeing what it is that we need to repent of. And that is what we need to repent of. Right? And so this is, this is the need that Jesus is wanting to expose here is that whether we've grown up in the church or whether we just wandered in off the streets from a life of, Paganism. Repentance is what is needed and repentance is what is offered to both. It's the invitation to both from the Father. The Father is inviting all of all people into his vineyard. He's inviting all people, regardless of backgrounds, regardless of social status, whatever. He's inviting all humanity into his vineyard. Work. This is again the goodness of the Father. I I think this is part of what we have to see in the second parable is is just notice the the detail and the care of the Father for his people. In verse thirty-three, when he says, Here another parable, there was a master of a house who's representative of the Father, who planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, he dug a wine press in it, he built a tower and leased it out to tenants and went into another country. It's, it's intended to be a picture of grace. Right? And it is this grace, it is this pursuit, it is this love that compels us to repentance. Right? So the religious need to repent of their attempts to earn salvation, right? So if you're here and you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself that you need to be here because this is what makes God happy, stop. Right. Repent of that. Right. And if you're somehow here and you're doubting or you're just struggling, you don't like God, maybe, you just prefer like the way of not religion or not church or whatever that is, you need to repent of that too. Both, both sides of the coin need to repent. That is, turn away from our, our attempts of living life and turn to God's. Bruner, in his commentary, he, he puts it like this. He says, quote, The parable of the two kinds of sons warns all the spiritually serious persons, I love that, the spiritually serious persons, To beware lest our energies be spent almost entirely in theological correctness and we make life obedience secondary, a peril alive in those of us who believe rightly that theological correctness is very important. The story also encourages moral failures with the wonderful possibilities of repentance and a changed life. So what's, what, what's revealed then is this, is that a truly repentant heart will ultimately give way to the fruit of the kingdom. And this is, this is God's desire, is that, that our lives would be lives that bear the fruit of the kingdom. Now, what is, what is the fruit? Well, ultimately, the fruit is to love God and love people. Right? Again, this is, this is where Jesus is taking us. So in Matthew 22... I can say that we'll get there next year. Look at verse 37. Verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the, the reality that's being exposed here in these parables by Jesus is that both the religious and the irreligious are rejecting God and rejecting people. And so the fruit of repentance is that we love God and we love people. We, we love God in all of his, his glory. Our desires to, to submit to him, to surrender to him. And we love humans in all of their mess. So I love, this is the, the shocking reality of these parables is that the example of those who receive the kingdom are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. No one expected that. They didn't, they didn't look, they didn't fit the bill in any way, shape, or form as anything exemplary to be a part of God's kingdom. And yet Jesus says it's those who the kingdom is going to, because those are the ones who are actually bearing kingdom fruit. And so then from there, we can imagine a a slowly and progressively transformed life, which is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. That over time, there will be a, a, a... a revealing of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those don't all come all at once, just so we know. It's not like, all right, I've got, I've got Jesus, and so boom, I'm perfect in all of these things. No, it's a process. There is, there is process here. I love how Jesus doesn't give us any illusion of the tax collectors and pro- prostitutes being anything but tax collectors and prostitutes. It, there, there is no indication here of, of hey, they, they went, they got their life cleaned up, they got some stuff figured out, and then they, they got to a point where they could come and follow me. No, they just started following him. That is our need, is to just start following Jesus. See? The final thing that the parables do here is they expose the plan. They expose the plan. Uh, so this is, this is particular here in verse 43. He says again, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls, I'll, I'll pause there before I forget. I think the broken to pieces thing is, is good, right? I, I think that's, that is the, the right desire, is that we would fall on Jesus and that our lives would be broken, Right? But those who refuse Jesus, on the other hand, are the ones who the stone falls on and it crushes them. All right, see the different responses there? But then look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, I love this, they perceived that he was speaking about them, okay? So Jesus wants the religious leaders to know that he's speaking about them, and it works because the religious leaders perceive that Jesus is talking about them. So When Jesus is saying these words, who's he talking to? Religious leaders, yeah? So that helps us to understand the the culmination of this text. It helps us to understand then what the plan is that's being communicated. Because what's being communicated is this, is that the kingdom is given to those who will produce its fruits. That is, what is coming after Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is a new people in Christ, This is what Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see that what's coming is a kingdom of both Jew and Gentile. That is a kingdom of the nations just as God has always planned it. This has always been God's purpose, right? So we don't have time to work Genesis 1 through 11, but in Genesis 12, what is is God's promise to Abram? is that he will wind up, his family will be a blessing to the nations, right? And then we have this, this very specific um, fulfillment here when Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So who's it being taken away from? Israel. Right? The leaders of Israel. It's being removed, but it's, but it's being transferred into a new people, the the, the actual promised people. This is what Jesus has come to fulfill. He says, uh, yeah, it will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, the word there, oh, here, no, let me do this first. Uh, Craig Blomberg, again, in his commentary, he says this, quote, Jesus is not so much foreshadowing the shift of God's activity from Jewish to Gentile realms, as anticipating the replacement of Israel by the church, which will unite both Jew and Gentile. That's specifically what Jesus is talking about. A a new people in Christ who is the better Israel. This is the beauty of this text. Like when when it all comes together, we have Jesus who's the better king, We have Jesus who is the better priest and the ultimate high priest who put an end to the sacrificial system once and for all eternity. We have Jesus who's the better prophet who calls us to himself. And we have Jesus who is the better Israel in whom all of the promises of God are fulfilled. Now this, this is gonna continue to play itself out over the next several chapters, just so we know that's why I'm wanting to work on this here a bit. Um, but Bruner, one more quote, he says this, he says, quote, the mysterious use of the singular nation. So this is important for us to see in verse 43, the word people there is the word ethne. Okay. It's the singular nation, which is different than what we most often see, which would be the plural ethnos, uh, which is nations. Okay. But it's highlighting something. So the mysterious use of the singular nation rather than the more familiar plural nations points to the new creation of a transformed Israel of both Jews and Gentiles, which the prophets had so frequently promised. So so again, this is where the whole story has been taking us. Like The the whole of the Old Testament has wanted to take us to this point. The whole of the Gospel of Matthew has been wanting to take us to, to this point that we would see that, that, that the promises of God are being fulfilled in the person of Christ, which culminates in this, this one new incredible people. So I just want to close again here this morning with Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11 through 22. And as, we, as I read this, just, just hear this, that the invitation for us is to hear the call of the Father and join the family. Like, that regardless of, of your religious background, upbringing, or lack thereof, the invitation for us this morning is to see the finished work of Jesus, right? And to, to fall <laughs> on him and follow him with the whole of our lives, producing the fruits of the kingdom. Listen to this, verse 11, Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Amen? That's, that's us. That's the church. That is, that is for all who are in Christ. This is the people that we are now. We are, we, are, we are God's dwelling place. It's incredible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, thank you um, for your prophetic voice, how you comfort and how you challenge. And I pray this morning that we would delight in the call to repentance, that we would see that the whole of our lives as followers of Jesus is to be one of repentance, a day in and day out turning away from ourselves and turning to you. Would you give us the grace to do so? Thank you, Jesus, that you came and preached peace to all who are near and all who are far off and that you have called us to yourself uh, to be your people. Uh, Thank you for your finished work. It's in your name we pray, amen.